Amen. There you go. Cindy Senator, thank you so much. Cindy has played piano for the last several years, been here all summer, of course, and uh, always a great job, so thank you so much. And I uh, also want to thank our staff, our senior staff that are here. This is Ricky Bass's 23rd season, and um, did you hear that? Wow. <laughs> and he, he looks like he's, I think he came when he was seven. He does. He looks like he's like 30, but he's been here 23 years. Um, and Gary Phillips, who, this is his 11th season. Gary's on the soundboard. Raise your hand. Unless you come and stay here, you don't get to know Gary unless the sound messes up. Then everybody looks back that way. And, uh, and then Joseph Stogner, this was Joseph and Emily that were singing. Joseph is our new assistant camp director, married in June, and officially came on staff here in July. Now, he served uh, for three summers as a summer staffer and was staffer of the year last year and uh, is now our full-time assistant camp director. And then Caleb Phillips, who is Gary's son, they're back there talking to each other. I caught you. Caleb has been our associate camp director, and he's leaving us. He was here for the summer. And uh, he is actually going, this is cool, he's going to work with one of the children's homes that comes here to the chapel. A lot of folks don't know that the reason the dormitories were built on this campus were for children's homes. And we still host, uh, this year, 14 children's homes that come and stay for free. And when I say for free, you think somebody has to pay for that. Well, they do. The, the chapel provides that, and the groups that stay on campus uh, there's offering boxes in the uh, dormitories, and that's what pays for that. In fact, what goes towards what those offering boxes goes towards is when we treat them to things like the Carolina Opry and the water park and the aquarium and other things that they've done over the years. So a lot of folks don't know that about Garden City Chapel, but uh, uh, that is just uh, really the reason dorms were built. Still a huge part. Of this ministry. So let me ask this question. Has anybody, is there anybody here today that has come with one of the children's homes, either with, as one of the children that came or as one of the leaders that came with the children's home? I know Carlisle Rogers is over here. He was, uh, for a hundred years, he was the director of the Big Brothers out of, uh, where is he? Where's Carlisle? Oh, there he is, Carlisle. I looked at Gary. I, you had your head down, Gary Nichols, and I thought, there's Carlisle. No, it's Carlisle sitting back here. He's hiding. Uh, but uh, God has blessed that ministry over the years, so um, we're, we're grateful for that as well. I want to invite you to open your Bibles, if you would, to Revelation chapter 22. I've spent the summer preaching through the book of Revelation, and if you've been here all summer, if you were here at the beginning, and I said that in 19 or 20 weeks we were going to cover 22 chapters of the book of Revelation, you thought I was crazy. Well, I am. But we did it, and uh, we're concluding today. In fact, what we're going to see today is somewhat of the epilogue of the book of Revelation. John was given this task, and just to catch you up to date, if you haven't been here all summer, let me give you a brief synopsis. John was told to write everything he saw, and he did. All right, that covers the first 21 chapters. No, there's a whole lot more to it than that. And John is on the island of Patmos. We think John was about 90 years old. He's been banished to this prison island. Now, why was he there? He was there because he was a follower of Christ, and the government at that time didn't like it. 
So they stuck him in prison on an island where he couldn't influence anybody. <laughs> How about that? They thought they had silenced him. But what happened? Jesus met him on the island and said, I've got some things to show you. And this overwhelms me to think. You see this in the first chapter. He said, we're, we're asking you, John, we're going to show you what is going to take place. You're going to see the, the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments. You're going to see the dragon, which is Satan. You're going to see the beast, which is the Antichrist. You're going to see the false prophet. And you're going to see their doom. You're going to see heaven and earth melt away. And you're going to see a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. You're going to see all that. And you're going to see things you have never seen before. And yet we're going to ask you to write it all down. So that us, me and you, we, into the future, could know about it. Now again, he does this from the island of Patmos where they thought they had silenced him. And yet what an impact. John had. He wrote the Gospel of John, of course. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Then he wrote this book of Revelation. And so, kind of an epilogue up until verse 6 of chapter 22. Everything that's happened so far has been prophecy, prediction. There's a little bit of it in this passage, but what John is going to see now is basically, okay, because you've seen all that, here's what the last thing people need to know. Let's pick up with verse 7 and read through 11, just this first section, as John writes. And behold, this is Jesus speaking, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw it, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. First thing that John says is the words of Jesus. Behold, I am coming quickly what does the word quickly mean well i would tell you this i believe the first century disciples and the first century church believed that the coming again of jesus was imminent the last time they had seen him on earth they saw him on the mount of olives ascending to heaven and we see the disciples just standing there i think with their mouths wide open just and an angel appears to him and said men of galilee why are you standing into heaven this Jesus who you've seen ascend into heaven, he's coming back. And he's giving you a task to do. Jesus gave them their marching orders. What did he tell them? He said, go over there to Jerusalem and you wait until the Holy Spirit's come upon you. And then you're going to be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. And so now we hear Jesus saying, I'm coming quickly. And you think, well, wait a minute, it's been 2,000 years. The word quickly also means this. It means suddenly. What did Jesus say about his return? When he was asked by his disciples, he said, no one knows the day or the time. They wanted a date. Jesus, we want to put this in our iPhone with reminders. When are you coming back? And he said, only the Father in heaven knows that. But what did he also say? He said, when I do come, it's going to be like a thief in the night. I'm coming quickly. 
meaning, yes, imminently. But more than that, I'm coming suddenly. And that's going to be important as we unpack some of the verses of point number two this morning. But Jesus declares, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of this prophecy. In chapter one, virtually the same thing is said. Blessed are those who read and those who heed the words of Revelation. Now, can I just say, I've been around a long time. I've preached a lot of sermons. I've never preached through the book of Revelation until this summer. I've enjoyed studying it this summer. But one of the things I'm convicted about is I've been responsible for keeping it kind of closed up. I think some people approach the book of Revelation as that book at the end of the Bible, right before the maps and the concordances, that you're really not supposed to know because it's, you can't figure it out. Well, you are supposed to know it. That's why we were given it. And so he says, blessed are those who heed it. Well, how are you going to heed it if you don't read it? In fact, what does the word heed mean? It means to keep it. It means to protect it. It even means to obey it. Well, again, how am I going to hold on to the words of something I have never opened and read? Now, I have, I've read through the book of Revelation. I'm kind of like some of you. When you see this, you know, the dragon and the beast, and you see the, you know, ten heads and seven horns, and one of the heads looks like it's wounded, and you kind of go, that's just too, it makes my head hurt. Give me an Advil and take me back to the Gospel of John. Well, I think what Jesus intended was for us to read it and for us to heed the prophecy of this book. Now, look what John does. John, based on everything he's hearing, based on what he's seeing, he's done it before, he bows down at the feet of the angel to worship. And what does the angel say? Don't do that. I don't know if y'all do this. You read the scripture and you think, why hadn't he gotten that? The angel told him that several chapters ago. I, the angel said, I'm just a servant like you. I'm a co-minister with you, a servant of the Most High God. I'm just an angel. Just like you and, the, and the, your brethren and the prophets, I'm just a servant. Don't worship me. Folks, here's the scary thing about worship. The word worship means the Greek word is proskuneo. It's two words put together. It means to kiss toward. The problem is some of us are kissing toward the wrong thing. Christmas Vacation, classic movie. Right at the beginning of the movie, they say, I'd take a rain check on that if I were you. Grandma was about to kiss the grandson. Take a rain check on that if I was you. He's got a lip fungus. We ain't identified. Listen, you better be careful what you kiss toward. Let me tell you how the enemy works. Satan hates it when you worship God. He hates it. What we're doing this morning, he despises that. Singing the songs that we've sung and hearing the word of God preached, this is part of worship. He hates it. So what does he do? He will do anything he can to derail you from worshiping. And for most of you, it's not going to be effective for him to come to your door and knock on it and say, hey, I'm the devil. Worship me. Now, for some, they do that. They're okay. That's not going to work for us. So what does Satan do? He tries to get you to worship anything else. Personal story. I lived in Gastonia, North Carolina for 15 years. And one of the things I did was I just had a heart for other ministers in our area. And I realized, you know what? When you lead worship at church, at times you feel like you don't get to worship. And so 
I said, why don't we have a, a day? In fact, we just took a lunchtime during the week. I think it was Tuesday at lunch. And we met at a church, and I just invited all the ministers in the area to come, and we had a time of worship. And it was awesome. We took a break for Christmas. The next time we came back, and we, we'd have 15 to 20 people, and all of them said, man, I, I'm not, never going to miss this. I'm going to invite all my friends. We'll be here next week. It was awesome. When we started back in January after Christmas of that year, the only three people that showed up was me and the pastor of the church we met at and the guy that led the music, the, the guy that played guitar and led us in singing. And I said, what happened? What's going on? Let's take some time to pray about what's happened here. And all three of us came back about two weeks later, and we said, you know what? We started worshiping worship. And you think, how does that happen? Listen, Satan wants you to worship anything other than God. He hates the fact that you worship God so much that he'll throw anything in your path to worship, even worship. Anything that takes glory away from God becomes an idol, and that had become an idol for me. So be careful. Do a self-examination. Listen, are you worshiping anything else? What does the word worship mean? It means to kiss towards, but practically it means this. You are elevating to the highest point in your life that which you value the most. So ask yourself, what's the most valuable thing to me? What's the most important thing in my life? Because, folks, I'll tell you, whatever the answer to that question is, that's what you're going to worship. And so the angel says to John, stop it. And have you ever asked yourself the question, how long does it take these, these thick-headed disciples to get it? John, why don't you get it? He's already told you that. And then I'm convicted because God says, and Robert, why does it take you so long? I've told you that before as well. You're a little slow. And here's what he's told after that. He says, the angel says to him, do not seal up the words of this prophecy. What does that mean? We've seen seals in the beginning. We, in the beginning of Revelation, we see this scroll that had seven seals on it. The seven seals would have been uh, wax with a um, signet ring insignia there, and it was there to protect the document, to seal it up, to basically say nobody but the intended recipient of this document is going to read this. And what he says to John is, don't seal this up. Why? Because the time is near. The time is at hand. So don't seal it up. We need this to be open. John, the reason you've been given these words of this prophecy is so that people would know about it. If John had sealed it up, you and I wouldn't have revelation in the back of our Bible. We couldn't read it. We couldn't heed it because it's sealed. So don't keep it closed up, John. Back to me. Folks, for years I've kept it closed because we study something else. One of the ways that we keep it sealed up is just we're not reading it and we're not heeding it. So if you're here today and you're saying, well, I wish I'd heard some of these other sermons, go to iTunes, Garden City Chapel, and you can listen to them. But folks, there's other gifted preachers that have preached through the book of Revelation. There's great books that you can read and study. Just open your Bible and begin reading through the book of Revelation. God intended for that to happen. So don't keep it sealed up because the time is near. The time is near. And it's going to become very obvious, the response of the people to whom the book is written. He says, and this is kind of confusing, but he says, let the one who does wrong still do wrong. 
Let the one who is filthy still be filthy. It sounds almost as if John is being told, hey, let sinners just stay sinners. And yet we know that's not the case because the Bible is all about an opportunity to come to faith in Christ. In fact, before the chapter's over, you're going to hear him say, if you're thirsty, come drink. The invitation's still open to everybody. I believe it means this. The time is so close that if you're somehow waiting till as soon as I see the sky crack open, as soon as I know I'm near the end of my life, then I'm going to turn my life over to Christ. You know what's going to happen? That's not going to happen. If you're on your deathbed, the last thing you're going to be thinking about is, I need to trust Christ now as my Lord and Savior. You're going to be thinking about keeping me alive. And I think he's simply saying, listen, if, if you have rejected Christ and you've just enjoyed your sin, it's not going to change when Jesus comes back. And your fate is sealed. Now, the holy and righteous ones, the ones who have genuine faith, that's also going to be evident because they're going to have that genuine faith to the very end. And folks, listen, whether you're alive when Jesus Christ returns or not, you're going to face him one day face to face. A good friend of mine ran a body shop in Gastonia, and he used to, he used to just get on to me because I didn't take good enough care of my car. He's like, when's the last time you had your oil changed? I don't even want to tell you what I told him. When's the last time you had your brakes checked, Robert? They're kind of squeaking. And I said, you know what? I, don't, I just don't have time for that. I don't have the money for that. Jesus is coming back. He said, yeah, if you don't get your brakes fixed, he's coming a little quicker for you. <laughs> Folks, listen, Jesus is coming back. For some, it'll be this year that you're going to face him face to face. And yet there's some, maybe even in this room, who will be here when Jesus returns in glory with the church to establish his kingdom. So the day is coming. What is the evidence in your life of genuine faith? Then the second time he says, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Pick up with me in verse 12 and let me read to the end of the chapter. Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. The end of the book of Revelation, the end of this epistle that John writes, ends with amen. But Jesus says, I'm coming quickly. The first one, he says, I'm coming quickly. Heed the words of the book. The next one is, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me. What does that look like? What does reward mean? Reward is, literally, it means this. What is due? It means what you have earned. 
reward can be good or bad. What you've earned for something, for the believer, what are we, what's the reward? It's eternal life. It's a mansion in heaven. For the unbeliever, it's the lake of fire that he talks about in chapters 20 and 21. Fire and brimstone, literally sulfur that burns forever. What's the reward? You say, wait a minute, what's the difference in grace and reward? Well, I'm going to explain that. What's grace? Grace is receiving something you don't deserve. Salvation is grace. For by grace you're saved through faith. So what's reward? Well, folks, God's given us something to do. Ephesians 2.8 says you're saved by faith. You're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, which lest any man would boast. And yet you get to verse 10 of that chapter and it says you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So I don't understand totally what the rewards are, but there are rewards. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He said, you're going to receive a reward. If you've built with gold, silver, precious stone, you receive a reward. If you've built with wood, hay, and stubble, your work's going to be burned up. And so he says his reward, the payment that's due, is coming when Jesus comes. For the believer, listen, eternal life is secure. But there's rewards in heaven. And I don't, I don't understand that. I don't know that it means you've got a nicer mansion, that you've got more crowns. It does talk about crowns in Scripture, but I hadn't figured out exactly what we do with those crowns in heaven other than cast them at the feet of Jesus in worship. But he says, my reward is with me, and I'm going to render it to every man according to his deeds. Then he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the first, the last, the beginning and the end. says it basically three times, but it's the same thing. He uses the alphabet first and says, you've got to understand, I'm the first letter of the alphabet. I'm the last letter of the alphabet. I'm the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Jesus is eternal. He has no beginning, and he certainly will have no end. He has always been, and he always will be. That's the eternal nature of our Lord. But he says, blessed. Blessed are you if you heed the words. Blessed are you also if you've had your robes washed. He talks about this early in Revelation. What are the robes washed in? They're washed in the blood of the Lamb. In God's economy, you take a dirty, filthy robe indicating the significance of your sin. You wash it in the blood of the Lamb, and it comes out sparkling white and clean, radiant. In fact, the word that he uses here is a word that indicates continuous action. It stays clean. Why? Because it's been washed in the blood of the Lamb. What Jesus did at the cross was sufficient, was enough to pay the penalty for my sin. So as I place my faith in Jesus Christ, I'm washed in that blood. And so he says, blessed are those because you have the right to the tree of life and you may enter by the gates. And then he says, but outside are the dogs. And if you read that and you think, wait a minute, we got gates to the holy city, but a suburb of the holy city is where the dogs are, the, the sorcerers and murderers and ones that practice lies, lies? No. Outside was indicated way back in the Old Testament that if you were outside of the camp, basically, it means you had been cast out into the outer darkness. That's where blasphemers went. And the first description he uses is these are the dogs. And some of you think, well, wait a minute, i got a pet dog at home. Dogs weren't pets in the first century. Dogs, they were vicious animals. And you know where they hung out? They hung out outside the gate in the garbage dump. That's where they took the garbage outside the trash gate, literally. Took it out and burned it. A place called Gehenna. 
And that's where the dogs hung out. And so when John uses this description, those where the dogs are, is very descriptive of the first century. For some of you who are thinking, Lassie. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the description then that he goes on to give, and that is those who are sorcerers. I mentioned that last week. The word sorcerer is where we get the word pharmacist from. And I had two druggists here last week, and I got to talk to them after the service because I explained to them, that's not what it's talking about. <laughs> but one of the immoral activities of drug users of the first century as part of the occult practices of these people were to use drugs as part of their worship of foreign deities and foreign gods. The immoral persons, the murderers, the idolaters, literally those who worship images. Well, you're going to see that in the book of Revelation. They're going to worship this false image, this image that's been made that it, it, it will talk and they're you know it's almost like they've given life to it and what it's going to tell the people to do is take a mark to the beast have a number written on your forehead or on your hand and that's going to be part of your worship of this image of the beast well their day their fate is sealed as those who are going to be outside of the protection of god everyone who loves and practices lying that doesn't mean you sit at home and think, I've got to become a better liar. I'm going to practice. No, it just means the course of your life is a lie. The practice of your life is immorality and murder and sorcery and lying. But Jesus says, I've sent my angels to testify to these things. Then he gives a description of himself. He says, I'm, I'm the root of David and I'm a descendant of David. What does that mean? In his deity... David was a descendant of him. He was the root that David sprung from. In his humanity, he was in the bloodline of David. And so he says, I'm both the root and a descendant. I'm the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say come. Folks, one of the things you see in the book of Revelation is the saints in heaven. We see under the altar are those murdered martyrs under the altar. And what are they crying out for? Oh God, how long? before you exact vengeance on your enemies? How long before you return to the earth to set up your kingdom that you've promised? And so when it says the Spirit says come, this is the Holy Spirit, a part of the Trinity, part of the Godhead, who looks forward to the day when Jesus is finally exalted ultimately to his rightful place. The same Jesus that we see ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, who is ultimately crucified on a cross, is coming again. And folks, he won't be riding a donkey. He doesn't come as a humble servant. He will come as a conquering king. He's on a white horse, and the host of heaven is with him. And one of the greatest things about that passage in Revelation is there's only one weapon, and he's holding it. And what is it? It's a sword. It's the word of God. It's the truth of God. Now, I believe we're part of that army in heaven. I think we're going to be part of the host of heaven. I think it's going to be the angels. I think it's going to be the church that comes back, and the battle with Satan is going to last that long. <laughs> because Jesus comes to take over. And the Spirit longs for that day. The bride also longs for that day. Who's the bride? Us. The church. The church is the bride of Christ. And it says we come down adorned. And we look forward to that day. The church has been crying out for the day ultimately when Jesus returns and folks he's coming in fact he says i'm coming quickly i'm co coming suddenly and yet there's still an invitation 
Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. How are you going to come if you don't know you're thirsty? I've read doctors, scientists tell us that the majority of Americans are, are dehydrated. Did you know that? We don't drink enough water. Some of you are thinking, why well, I had a Diet Coke. That's doing more harm than good. You need some water. But you know what? Spiritually speaking, we are spiritually dehydrated. We need to come to the water of life and drink. And so Jesus says, let those who are thirsty come. Folks, you won't come if you don't know you're thirsty. And the problem is there are people alive today, there have been people that have been alive through history that have had the same invitation. Come to the fountain. Come to the never-ending supply of God and drink. And they've rejected that. But for those of us who have come, what does he say? Drink as much as you want without cost. Now let me remind you something. It doesn't cost you anything. What did it cost Jesus? His life. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin and pay for your privilege to one day as a believer drink for eternity from the water of life and eat for eternity from the tree of life. Let the one who's thirsty come. And then he ends with a warning. He said, if anyone adds to what I've told you in this prophecy, God's going to add to him the plagues. How do you add to it? Well, adding to it by saying, it says things that it doesn't say. If you read commentaries on Revelation, you'll see what I mean. You get 12 commentators together, you'll get about 15 opinions on what some of these things mean. My approach to Revelation is simply being, what does it say? Not trying to find some mystical thing. Folks, I think God intended the book of Revelation to be open and understandable. We make it difficult, and when you do, you're adding to it. He also says if you take away from it, then God's going to take away your name from the book of life. What a warning. So don't do it. In the time that I've got left, I just want to share one last passage of Scripture with you. From 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to do this very quickly, but in, ch in chapter 3, Peter talks about this day. Now keep in mind, Peter was one of the disciples who was there the day that the disciples said, Jesus, tell us about what it's going to look like, what the end of the age is going to be like. And Jesus talks them through that in Matthew 24 and 25. So Peter writes about it, inspired by God to say this, Since all these things are, are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? This is 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. I just think a question to ask as we end the book of Revelation is this. Okay, what now? So what? What do we do as a basis of the prophecy that we've studied? And Peter says, listen, for those of us who look forward, in fact, one of the crowns this promise is for those who long for the coming of the Messiah, of Jesus. And so he says, because we're looking for that, what should we do? Well, first of all, be diligent to be found in him and then he lists some ways. He says, first of all, be diligent to be found in peace, literally tranquil or in unity. Also, be found in him spotless. What does that mean? Unblemished and pure. 
What does that mean? I don't know if you've ever, as a kid, you know, before a date, I would go to my mom's makeup mirror. She had one of those makeup mirrors, and you're just kind of checking your face out. Any spots, blemishes we need to take care of? Back in my day, they didn't have, like, male makeup that you can, like, you know, cover stuff with. You're just stuck with whatever's there. And the problem with my mom's mirror is you could flip it over, and then it, like, magnified it a hundred times. And you're like, I can't go out in public. Here's what it means to be spotless. It means that God can look at you through his magnifying glass and see absolutely no imperfection. How do you do that? Folks, that's only possible through Christ. It's only possible as you come to faith in Jesus and he now sees you the way he sees his son. Why? Because you dealt with your sin? No. Because Jesus paid for it. And you now are righteous in the sight of God. So be diligent to be found in him in peace and spotless and lastly, blameless, literally unblameable or of good reputation. And again, none of that's possible unless Jesus Christ has come into your life and made you, as Paul described it in 1 Corinthians, a brand new creature. Listen to me. Jesus Christ did not die on the cross to make you a better person. He died on the cross to make you a brand new person big difference he didn't just come with a scrub bucket with some ajax and clean you up on the outside he recreated you from the inside and because of that then the last thing peter says is regard patience as salvation what does that mean earlier in the chapter he said there's going to be people in the last days that are going to say jesus isn't coming back if he was coming back he'd already come back it's been over two thousand years he's not coming and peter says don't regard his delay is the fact that he's slow no Regarded as the fact he is patient. Why? Not willing that any should perish. And so regard his patience as salvation. What does that mean for us? Listen, if you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, today is the day of your salvation. Come to him. If you have come to faith in Jesus, what are we to do? Well, what's the last thing he told his disciples? Matthew 28, other places in the gospel, Acts chapter 1, what did he say? Go. Go. You will be my witnesses. Go. Make disciples. Tell people about Jesus. Help them come to faith in Christ. And once they come to faith in Christ, help them grow in Christ until the day that they're making disciples on their own. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Father, we look forward to the day when Jesus returns just like you have promised. Father, I pray for anybody within the sound of my voice this morning that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior. Then, Father, your patience has given them one more opportunity to simply come before a holy God and say, I'm thirsty. I'm needy. The reason I need a Savior is because I know I'm a sinner. And I know because of my sin, I'm separated from you. And yet I come because by faith in Christ, you Forgive me of my sin. Cleanse me of unrighteousness. And give me a promise of an eternal hope. God, for others in this place, Lord, because we know you, we need to be telling people about you. God, use us tomorrow in the workplace, the next day in our schools, in our families, in our neighborhoods, to be a shining example that Jesus saves. We pray this in Christ's name.